Hello, and welcome to the show Gold Squadron Gays. It's the podcast where two Star Wars-loving gays break down each episode of their favorite Star Wars TV shows while also being gay as hell. I'm your host, Bradley Brower. I'm your other host, Charles Rogers, and today we are joined for Mando Episode 1 by a guest. Guest, uh, do you want to introduce yourself? Although I think you, you would be familiar to anyone who listened to our Andor or Mando Season 2 or Mando Season 1 coverage. <laughs> Hi, I'm Erin Llewellyn. You might have heard me before. Yes, I'm back again. It's it's because I can't get enough of the history stuff, and and several audience members have expressed to me that they they love the history stuff. And so, anytime I see an episode where I'm like, hmm, this seems like a topic Erin would know about. I'm in, I'm in our group chat. Like, Erin, do you want to come on and talk about boom towns in the old west? Oh, good. Oh, good. So long as it's me coming back, like, hey, I'm back, and not Bryce. Oh God. Remember me, motherfuckers? I'm back again, unfortunately for you. You would be the Bo-Katan Krees of of this podcast, just constantly showing up again like, surprise, I'm still here. I'll take it. I'll take it. I I also Uh, still think that Aaron could cosplay Bo-Katan extremely well. I'm not just saying this because they're both genders. Like, there's no real way you can see what Aaron looks like anywhere publicly, but I promise (laughs) she looks like a younger Bo-Katan. Oh, I've worked hard on that. I'm so proud of myself. So proud, but but yeah. Wait, that's uh, actually ginger. very controversial to say that because according to fucking this show, uh, oh, Katana is like seventy years old for some reason. She's oh, like. I- Somewhere between 45 <laughs> and 60. And we get contradictory information from interviews as to exactly how old she is. I think they estimate she's around her late 40s in this show. Oh, I, I have questions about like the natural lifespans of Mandalorians and if that differentiates <laughs> from, you know, real life Earth humans. But uh, I'm still making the confusion about my age work for me at the age I'm at i won't say how old i am but it's people will say and you're and they pause I'd like to thank my parents for their excellent genetics and highly recommend moisturizing your face. moisturizing is good i personally do a, a very good skincare regimen that has kept me looking a few years younger than my actual age and speaking mm-hmm. of People who are different than their actual age. I don't know where this segue was going. Uh, It's time to begin in earnest our conversation of The Mandalorian. Uh, Quick disclaimer at the top of this first episode. So all of the other episodes we are going to record uh, from this season, we, we will be doing retrospectively. We will have seen all of the other episodes. Now, we never approach it that way. We always stick to the content of whatever's in the episode we're watching or episodes previously, which is also good because Erin was telling us at the top of the show that she has not actually seen anything past this episode we're talking about. Truly blind. So she's uh, truly blind. Control control group here. To what, what's going to come. Uh, although I, I do want to say, in case anyone gets super mad at us, and there is one big point in particular that like I feel like I can't address until I've seen the whole season. So just as an FYI, Bradley and I have seen everything up through episode seven of the season. Erin has seen only the first episode. So that is how... 
tell we are coming into this. You gotta have a control group. That's the only way. You gotta have a control group. I, I'm sure. I'm sure Jordan's probably listening to the show because uh, I think she only listens to the Aaron episodes and nodding her head along with "Yes, that is how you do science." I am a scientist and agree with you. I'll let her know. She'll agree. <laughs> she'll, she'll agree. She'll agree. She she agrees with so much and never never contradicts me about anything. Uh-huh. Uh, it tells me that I'm wrong, which I usually am. Anyway, speaking of people being wrong about things, Bradley, you want to take us into to this season of The Mandalorian? Yeah, and you know what's funny is uh, when I was writing my script, I forgot that I don't usually say the title until we get to the title card. So this is like a learning curve going back to this format of doing this. <laughs> yeah, you script. haven't had to do any fucking work since Andor. I know, and that's why it's I'm like, okay. It's been 18 weeks. Uh, it's been for, 18 years or whatever. For context, <laughs> anyone who's just joined joining us on the show and Aaron who looks mildly confused uh Bradley only does scripts so only does summarizing the beats of the episode for the live action shows because it helps us segment them out when we do the bad batch like we have been for the past 16 or so weeks he just gives a little brief tagline at the top and we just go from there so he's just had a lovely little four-month vacation of doing absolutely no work while I scramble to do all the fucking research in this show wow the descriptors you do scene by scene are very helpful. I was listening back to your book of Boba Fett and some of the last Mandalorian episodes to kind of like remember what had happened because I have the memory of a goldfish and your breakdowns really do help a lot. Your breakdowns really do help a lot. They're quite good and succinct. Well, good. Um, I I'm gonna we'll we'll get into uh the first part in a second. But so what I'll just to remind everyone what we always normally do is I'll introduce the, the episode and then the a brief summary of the episode and then of course one thing you guys liked and one thing you didn't about the episode. So on that note, let's start with the Mandalorian season three episode one where the Mandalorian begins an important journey. Aaron, what is one thing you liked about this episode and one thing you did not? One thing I liked about this, and this is the standout moment in the episode for me personally, which there's some really great, like for the story scenes in there, and there's some really great filming scenes in there, like from a filming perspective. The thing that stood out to me the most that I, you know, hit the 10 seconds back button a few times to just rewatch it again because it, it I loved it so much was the bit where they're traveling through hyperspace to get to Navarro, I believe. And they pass by a space whale pod and you you see Baby Yoda. There's no dialogue. Baby Yoda is watching the space whale pod go by in hyperspace and he climbs down out of the little droid window. And Mando is asleep in the front seat, you know, autopilot on. We're calling him Grogu now. He's right? Grogu now. Okay. In my notes, he's Baby Yoda all the way through. I will. Grogu, he climbs down out of there and then you see him like pop up under Mando's arm the way like I I don't know my dog has done this when she wants pet or I've had cats do it to me a lot pops up under Mando's arm and crawls into his arms while he's while Mando is asleep while Din is asleep and cuddles up in his arms curls up and just takes a little nap and it's so cute it's so sweet my first watch through this was with my father actually and he hates it when I talk during the movie but he (laughs) interjected and said oh he he feels safer when he's when he's being held i'm like yeah yeah he does and he looks at me and he's like you know you used to be that that small i'm like cool cool i'm i'm an adult now thanks 
Cool. That's nice, Dad. Anyway, we're watching a movie. Let's address these emotions at a later date, probably never. But it's so, so cute. I know my rewatch, I just hit the back button a couple of times and went, oh. Anyway, that was the thing I like. It has no bearing on the plot, really. But I think it, you know, emotionally, their relationship is really, truly like a parent and child and getting to like actually act out that attachment that they have. It's so sweet. Anyway, that was the thing I liked. The thing I didn't like. I'm not sure I like in my rewatch was the part that I kind of zoned out during and didn't take much notes was the chain of events where we are rebuilding a PC. And he seems really great at hardware. He does not comprehend software. I know he wasn't good with droids before this, but I'm sitting here watching back like, that's not how computers work. That's not, buddy, buddy. Okay, if the memory is blown, it's not, okay. It's not the whole, I want a droid that I trust thing. It's like someone who's, you know, rebuilt parts of a, of a PC and a Mac. That's not, okay. No, I didn't care for that as much. Uh, one thing that I liked about the episode, I, I like the sense that a lot of time has passed. Uh, and I know this was controversial on a meta level because of some things that Jon Favreau said. We're not going to address this, but I do like how in the episode, it is abundantly clear that at least from the end of the Book of Boba Fett to now, some time has passed. Uh, the Mandalorian covert has rebuilt. They have gathered some other Mandalorians back that were scattered after season one. We also, uh, we see that Navarro has changed slightly. And Den has had the chance to go and, and have this adventure where he found this crystallized piece of, of Mandalore that he shows to the armor at the beginning. Um, one thing I didn't like, I, I didn't like how the episode ended. And I remember when I watched the episode the first time when I watched the premiere, because I do think I stayed up late to watch the premiere. It just kind of ended. Like it doesn't end on any any substantial note. All of the other episodes, even though this season has decided to do more serialized storytelling, so it's decided to tell a single cohesive story over eight episodes, as opposed to eight separate uh, vaguely connected episodic adventures. The issue that I, I have is that they sort of end this episode. And also, like, we're not going to talk about where the season is going. In hindsight, I see how they might have thought that was a strong ending. But watching the episode the first time, you're like, okay, there's really no resolution. He's still doing the same thing he's been doing for most of the episode, which is prepare to go to the Mines of Mandalore. Mm -hmm. And especially the fact that he didn't actually go to the Mines of Mandalore in this episode. Uh, so I, I didn't really like how the episode episode ended. What about you, Bradley? One thing you liked and one thing you didn't. Um, one thing I liked, I, I love the return of, you know, favorite characters, right? So I loved seeing, of course, Grief Karga coming back. I like seeing mm -hmm. Bo-Katan coming back, even IG-11 coming back, you know, for a little bit. I think I love the season <laughs> one kind of almost vibe that this had. What I didn't like, I'm with you, is the structuring of the episode. And, and it's just like in hindsight, like I, I don't like we had this discussion with Chris in one of our last episodes about how it's when it's on streaming it the time frame for this episode doesn't need to follow conventional time like the episodes don't need to be a conventionally like you know like, like there's no like actual 30 minute show or 45 minute show structure like it doesn't need to have that because it is on streaming so you can have the episode as long or as short as you want I feel like 
this episode does a very similar thing where like the next five minutes of episode two should be like the Bingo. ending of this episode. <laughs> yes. Bingo. So um, without like going into episode two. Spoiling well, like, for Aaron. Yes. Right. Exactly. The, they, the opening scene of episode two scene. should have been the ending scene of this episode. Good. 100%. Good. Yeah. Because it felt unfinished. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. To it me, definitely uh, is. Too. Yes. <laughs> now, and I, I like what your point, Charles, was that the reason why they did this is because it is a connective eight-part story over the course of the season. So it is all one big story. However, it, it's just not quite segmented correctly. Just, just, it's a little off. I see how they could look at Bo telling Din to fuck off as right. like a major point in the overall structure of the season, but I can't say why because Aaron hasn't watched it yet. But we'll get to it, it. it just doesn't hit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I-, I will say coming from Andor being the uh, last you know, piece of Star Wars media I consumed regularly. Andor was so well structured and paced that it felt, well, Andor, I just loved Andor. Andor was very good. It was a bit of a whiplash coming into the new like vibe of the show from that. And also Andor, again, again, so well paced that this felt choppy, not necessarily because it is bad, but because it's not necessarily as well planned out, perhaps, or like you guys pointed out on your Book of Boba Fett coverage, this there's a whole, you know, interlude where it becomes Mando season 2.5 and really makes me feel like, okay, 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 this is it feels like sifting through and finding the things that go together in the right order without having a really well planned out order. Yeah, it just it just felt a little messier. I think too, like a lot of a lot of Star Wars fans kind of went through the same journey. I know we went through it with Bad Batch because I was pretty down on the first two episodes of Bad Batch. I watched the first two episodes of Bad Batch and I was like, fuck is this? I mean, going back to it, it, it was coming down from the Andor high and and Andor being such a different, excellent show that the pulpiness of how the Mandalorian and the Bad Batch were written, for me, I, I had to kind of adjust my brain to get back used to that. And I am going to be interested to see if we have to go through the same thing after Andor Season 2 or The Acolyte. Uh, I do feel like The Acolyte is going to raise the bar again. Okay, let's let's talk about the recap because I, normally we don't cover the recap in The Mandalorian Normally we don't. Because we don't need to. However, this is a very special case because this recap did something very interesting, which we theorized back in our episode zero was that how are they going to explain how Grogu and Mando are back together in episode one? And, and what's what the this... answer, Bradley? What did <laughs> the they episode... tell us? The answer is they just randomly threw in Book of Boba Fett clips in the season recap without distinguishing Book of Boba Fett from the Mandalorian season one mm-hmm. and season two. <laughs> oh, hold on. No, no, no. Because it gets even better. You know what's <laughs> not in the fucking recap? Any explanation at all how they got back together. (laughs) It's not there. They recap his relationship with the armorer and his relationship with... But if you're watching... Yeah, with IG-11, because those of them are going to be important in this episode. But if you wanted to know why Grogu is back, fuck you. Go watch the Book of Boba Fett. You shouldn't have skipped it. Yeah, I had to go back and... I'm not good at finishing shows. I had to go back and actually... I'm really not. 
Yeah, I had to go back and finish watching the last episode of Book of Boba Fett because just in case the reunion doesn't happen in Mando, I should probably cover, you know, what happened to Mando in that last episode of Book of Boba Fett. And it's a good thing I did because they do, you know, Grogu leaving Luke off screen and they have Pelimoto wonderfully pop in with with you know Grogu like I brought your baby oh no everything's trying to kill us out here and it's a fun scene but it's in a completely different show and you're not told probably watch Book of Boba Fett and if you didn't watch Book of Boba Fett well screw you 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 missed a whole bunch they just kind of assumed people watched Book of Boba Fett and and that's part of the issue and we discussed this in our our celebration episode when I was theorizing about Heir to the Empire uh I was like my big concern is that they'll approach Heir to the Empire like assuming you've seen all of the Mandoverse shows that you've watched Mandalorian Book of Boba Fett Skeleton Crew Ahsoka and it's kind of the Marvel problem to where mm-hmm. my hot take is you should be allowed to skip Star Wars shows that don't really interest you. They should be you able should to not... stand on their own. Right. And I think the issue with not doing Book of Boba Fett under like a Mando subtitle, like the Mandalorian comma the Book of Boba Fett or colon the Book of Boba Fett. Honestly, even that titling thing to say, hey, it is part of the Mandalorian story and you do need to watch the whole thing. It is go in the sequence here and Ahsoka the same way. Not to bring in a opposition on the stage of sci-fi into the mix but star trek has been working around this problem for a long long time they're knocking Uh, it out of the park recently yeah yeah they've been doing pretty good pretty good pretty good historically they've always kind of done the show thinking okay you might not have watched okay you're watching deep space nine everything about this show rests upon what's happened in next generation we start off with basically the battle that launched this show but they show you the scene they show you scenes from it from a character's perspective we've never seen before so you're filled in on what happened before in a new way so the people watching they're coming from the old show know what's happening but the people that are watching for the very first time are filled in. You don't have to go back and do more, do your homework. Probably because it aired back before streaming was ever a thing. They can't rely that you were able to have access to the TV show when the last one aired. You would have to, you would have to have gone to the video store and rented and like they, the video stores, at least in my town, they rented like per disc so you had to rent the first four episodes of something this was the 90s this This was the the 90s 90s. you had to go rent the first four episodes like i remember getting the ewoks and droid show and you would rent a disc from like the blockbuster or something and it would only have like convention yeah or you find a guy at the the convention (laughs) that would have like the vhs yeah the box sets yeah and i'm remembering even after dv when dvds came out they used to be only able to fit like four episodes on a dvd DVD. So you would get like, go to the video store as a kid and you would pick like, do I want to watch droids number five through eight or nine through 12? And you would get the disc and then you would take it home and you would watch all of the episodes. This was, this was the days before streaming. Anyway, I want to point out that that one line they've chosen to include in the recap is the line, there is only one way, the way of the Mandalore that that Din says to Bo. Uh, We're not going to address it this episode, but everyone collectively put a pen in that. Mm -hmm. We will come back to that in six episodes. I want to point out that line was said. Uh, So anyway, that was like 15 minutes on just the recap from the last season. Bradley, do you want to take us into the opening of this season? 
Absolutely. So we begin with the armorer and a group of Mandalorians holding a ceremony to induct a young child, Ragnar, into the tribe. The ceremony is interrupted when an alligator-like creature attacks the Mandalorians. The clan initially fails to defend themselves but are saved when Din shows up and unalives the creature with a torpedo. Grogu is also here and somehow was reunited with Din. Title card, Chapter 17, The Apostate. I think it's a really interesting choice for the season to start with with the armorer because mm-hmm. the armorer mm-hmm. what the armorer is up to what her deal is is something that this season has been not so much exploring as it is muddying slightly yeah and I, I find it interesting that they elected to start with her and it also leans into this season being not so much about Din Djarin as the Mandalorian, but about the Mandalorians as a whole and a people as a whole. So I think it's it's really interesting to start with the armorer forging a helmet. Yeah. Like I said, I was watching back, you know, episodes from Book of Boba Fett. And suddenly, you know, after having watched this, going back and like caught up with Book of Boba Fett, first rewatched some of those episodes, specifically the episode where he goes back and is declared an apostle it and was just obsessed thinking about the 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 armor like there is so much going on with her I might I don't know if I'll be able to get into it later but the thing that stands out to me that I don't remember if you get you you got you might have covered it in your episode coverage she's sparring with him during that episode while she's working on the male shirt for Grogu yeah when she's trying to train him how to use the dark saber she knows that it can only only be one in combat at no point does she just take it from him and she can and Paz Vizsla tries like he tries that's a really interesting point we didn't bring that up but yeah she could 100% just challenge him for the dark saber and take it Mm -hmm. and I I think that her she knows that one she has a lot of power over Din Djarin she doesn't need to take it from him Uh, if she ever wanted that role she is best suited to operating behind the scenes because of the amount of soft power she has over him and two I don't think that she is served in any way by going back to Mandalore I think she knows that she is more powerful away from that center of where they are actually from yeah because she has that level of uh that level of like control I guess would be the word that I'm looking yes. for over the Mandalorians uh, as long as they're this people in exile mm-hmm. she she has a great deal of influence to where yeah if they were back on Mandalore and Aaron I think you're gonna find this season real interesting oh the certainly this goes and uh, to tie this into what we open up on we open up on yeah her her forging the helmet but also a baptism that she is conduct she is the one conducting this baptism baptism she is the one in the the highest up in this particular sect that we have seen and she is the one that young people you said his name was Ragnar Ragnar we Ragnar, won't yeah. find that out for we won't find that out for three more episodes but that's only a mild spoiler this kid's name is Ragnar some Viking vibes love it makes sense for the Mandalorians checks out but uh, it will also make a lot of sense when you find out who this kid is great fantastic fantastic looking forward to it uh but but yeah she's the one that's conducting these confirmation ceremonies of sorts if she's the one conducting these confirmation ceremonies of sorts that induct people into becoming a Mandalorian within their sect I'm guessing she's done it all of the people that aged into this that were the foundlings in the children of the Watch. to the point where on my rewatch I 
started looking around for how many of these people are children. I'm just trying to figure it out based on their height. Like how many of these people are children? Because all of those children would have probably gone through the same ceremony. And we don't know how many of them are just young people like Din's age or younger that are adults technically, but still younger than the armor. How many of these people has she personally inducted into this? Uh, Speaking of that kid, now we're we're not going to recap every single actor we've seen before. Uh, We have done Mando season one, Mando season two, and Book of Boba Fett. We are not going to cover, this is who Pedro Pascal is. (laughs) This is who Carl Weathers is. We assume by the time you've gotten to season three, you know who these people are. However, this kid is an exception, and there may be a few other exceptions of people who've also appeared. There actually is one big exception later on, but this kid is an extra special exception because he was a major character in the Book of Boba Fett as well. Uh, And I did want to shout him out. This kid's name is Wesley Kimmel. If you don't remember who he is, he is the nephew of uh, Jimmy Kimmel. You know who Jimmy Kimmel is. Yeah. He is the Tuscan kid in the Book of Boba Fett. So he he plays the Tuscan kid. And let me double check something. Oh, lucky for him. They can bring him back because we didn't see his face last time. We didn't exactly. see his face. So right. now we get to see him again. He does not, as far as I can tell, have a Disney trifecta yet. But he is one property away. He has to appear in a mainline Disney property. Because in addition to being the Tuscan kid in Book of Boba Fett, he's commercial boy in WandaVision. He's in one of the commercials in WandaVision. So he has appeared in a Marvel thing. It doesn't look like any of the other things he's appeared in. It doesn't look like mm. he's appeared in a mainline Disney thing. Yeah. So he's time, one away. Time in enough. Right. <laughs> anything can happen. <laughs> anything anything can happen when your uncle's Jimmy Kimmel. And I mean, the kid's a good actor too. Like he's... I, I imagine he'll probably have an excellent career, but okay, okay. he's doing he's doing pretty okay. I think he does best when, uh, at least from what I've seen him in the show, he does best as a movement actor. Mm-hmm. He's a lot better when he's in the helmet. Yeah. He's having to actually. <laughs> Oddly enough, go. yes. Oddly enough, he could have a really good career as like a creature performer. That would he be. Did. He is his his role is the Tuscan kid, like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. unbelievably yeah, like unbelievably expressive, unbelievably good, and that that character didn't have a single line of discernible dialogue uh but when the tuscan yeah. kid dies i was genuinely mad yeah i was mad oh. for a lot of reasons i was also furious yeah once he has the helmet on when we see the gator turtle show up on the beach because it's a gate looks like a gator and it does a death roll like a gator but it has a shell like a turtle so i think of it i have it in my notes as gator turtle his movement acting you can think you can understand everything about his chain of thoughts as he's running around like wants to go help people and then he freezes and you can you know exactly what he's thinking from just the choices he's making moving around great job how old is this character supposed to be uh or maybe how old is the actor? they don't specify i mean he's young he's i don't think he's more than the like actor... 13 he or 14 about, he looks about 10 or 11 I yeah, it doesn't a... it doesn't say it doesn't have to be specific i only ask because in the mainline protestant church i was originally raised in confirmation happens at about 11 12 when you're old enough to make the choice to join the church and they do a whole ceremony very much like this another mild uh another mild spoiler for you uh but i'm, I'm not going to say too much about That's it because i do want you to genuinely have the moment um the ability to speak the creed is very important to the um the path to becoming a, a quote-unquote mandalorian as defined by the children of the watch 
That makes sense. So that makes it sense. does have a lot of shades. I didn't even realize he pointed out that it has a lot of shades of Catholic confirmation. All of the traditions have something like this. There's centuries of quibbling over whether you can baptize someone as a, a child or baptize someone as an adult. And mostly the yeah. consensus has come on. You can dedicate a child as a baby. And then as an adult, you join and become a member of the church is usually how it plays out in my experience. Yeah, I was I was baptized at around age eight, seven or eight. So I like I was really in the church. Like I went mm -hmm. to a religious private school and I was in church twice a week. So like I didn't know anything else. So I was really excited to do this. And when I started experiencing things outside the church by going mm -hmm. to public school and then we had an incident where we got kicked out of a church. So we had to shop around different churches and that had the inadvertent Same. thing of demonstrating like how this all works. And if you had asked mm -hmm. me at 18, do you want to be baptized? My answer would have been no. That's it. I had both experiences. I was the religion I started with. The sect I started off in, they do baptism as a baby with the sprinkling, the, I think it's aspiration they call it. And then the tradition I was in as a young teenager when I was 13 after the confirmation in the other church. So I become a member of one and then my family's like, we're going to shop around. I'm like, oh, okay. And then in the new one, they do baptism as an adult and you can do it again anytime you want because this is evangelical fundamentalist Christianity. And they do a full on dunk, uh, submersion in water. And this, it looks like they're doing a combination of both. The whole time I'm sitting here thinking, oh, the Mandalorians do a combination of dunking and sprinkling. Interesting. Speaking of comparisons between the Mandalorians and actual real religious groups, um, I'm going to come into this kind of in a disclaimery politician way. So there's been a lot of, we'll charitably call it discussion uh, amongst fans of the show as to based on the new information that we're getting in season three, whether or not the children of the watch count as a cult. Now, I'm not really going to have that conversation until we see what the hell is up with the armor. Because for me, a lot of it is going to boil down to, is the armor genuinely trying to keep alive traditions and is evolving, trying to evolve the religion in a direction that it can survive versus is the armor using the tenets of the religion as a directive to control the members of her particular Mandalorian sect. For me, it's going to boil down to that. So I'm not really going to hop into the, is this a cult or is this just an Orthodox religion? There are certainly a lot of discussion around that. Uh, what I would rather do with that on this particular episode, all that said, we don't want to make as of yet any sort of determination on whether or not uh, this is a cult or this is like more an Orthodox religion than that is just in exile. Uh, rather than focus on that now, even though I stand by everything I said in the previous three seasons of this, uh, I would rather use it as a springboard to hear about some examples of this having happened in our real life. Because there's a lot of cases, both in cases of Orthodox religions that have been removed from their homelands or removed from a land in particular, and also cults that have had this happen to them. And there was one big cult that had this happen to them that, Aaron, you let me know. Like, I immediately thought of this because of the Old West vibes. Do you want to talk a little bit just some history for our viewers again with 
with the disclaimer that we are not making any direct comparisons here between the Children of the Watch and any of the groups that Aaron is about to talk about. With that disclaimer out of the way, Aaron, do you want to talk to us about uh, some religious groups in exile? Yeah, so I I will say the one that would primarily come to mind uh, for both a lot of historians and probably for a lot of people watching would be the expulsion of the Jewish people from their homeland, where we get the word diaspora from. It's a it's a Greek word, it means to scatter, and I believe it originated specifically to describe uh, what happened to the Jewish people as far back as because it happened multiple times. Uh, under multiple rules, uh, Babylon, Rome, Rome again. But... If you if you read like the books of the Old Testament, like if you actually go through and read the whole thing, yeah, it's it's like a revolving door mm-hmm. of the Jewish people getting. They will settle in their homeland, and then something will happen. According to the the Old Testament, which is the only version of this that I've read, mm-hmm. usually the people will piss God off, and He will let them get conquered, and then they will eventually get freed and go back. And it's this revolving cycle of this keeps happening over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. But the big one, of course, being Rome. That yeah. eventually Rome eventually does come in and like does their Rome thing. Yeah, the conquest of Roman Judea and. To the point where if you look at diaspora studies for the first hundred years of there being written academic papers of on it that you can access, that I could access, near, about 90% of them are about the Jewish diaspora, uh, fueled in part, uh, of course, after the, the Holocaust, people definitely started writing more about it. And now we apply this term to uh, a lot of different groups that have been, you know, exiled or thrust from a place for various reasons. Like you've got the Irish diaspora after the the Great Famine. Diaspora that happens for non-religious reasons after Hurricane Katrina. Tons of people. This is a climate crisis diaspora that, you know, people are thrust from their homeland for this reason. Tons of people had to leave New Orleans and never come back again. Basically climate refugees from this natural disaster. And in the case of the Mandalorians are survivors of a natural disaster that destroyed their planet. And uh, not a natural disaster. Uh, sorry, not um, a natural disaster. A man very unnatural disaster. disaster. A man-made uh, disaster. That sounds like as far a propaganda as... from the Empire there. Erin, Erin, are you spreading imperial no. propaganda? <laughs> no, I my the thing I was thinking was a climate disaster. Camino was totally destroyed in a giant freak storm. Never mind that Camino definitely has had storms for hundreds of years and has been fine. The specific storm was bad enough to declo- destroy the cloning facilities don't worry about it pay no attention to the nuclear fallout exactly the planet is poisoned uh, by stuff we we promise so i guess my my sort of follow-up question would then be i don't know if you would know the answer to this aaron uh but what differentiates a diaspora from a a refugee crisis is it the not having somewhere to go back to is it sort of everyone being gone from a place that's an interesting question because my so, first thought, I've been I've been listening to the Dragon Age lore cast a lot, 
And my first thought was, oh, that's just like the, sorry to Bradley and everyone who doesn't l play Dragon Age. It's just like the Ferelden's uh, fleeing to the the free marches. But then I'm like, no, it's not exactly the same because for the Ferelden people are still there. It's just the people who were in specific villages in the south. They got overrun mm -hmm. by the Darkspawn. There's this giant wave of them going up to the free marches because fuck or lay. Yeah. So my question is like, or I guess the thought that I would have is what is the difference? difference between a group mm -hmm. religious or otherwise in diaspora and just a whole bunch of people left here for reasons so there is there is an answer to that sometimes diasporas in the modern day when we talk about a diaspora sometimes diasporas happen out of choice nowadays when scholars and you know political scientists talk about diaspora to refer to people making the choice to leave a place uh for example when you talk about americans living abroad they'll refer to as the american diaspora basically people that started off in one place and went somewhere else it's now used as a more neutral term than just a refugee crisis a group of displaced peoples historically is used to refer to people who have left for a number of reasons i guess in this case what we are describing is closer to a refugee crisis though my assumption would be the people who survived the the destruction of Mandalore were people that were already outside of Mandalore at the time. And so I will not answer whether or not that is accurate. Because because we know that the 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 children of the watch they were, they were on, on the moon of Concordia. Yep. And so and we see Bo Katan on a castle on a planet in the Mandalorian system. And so we will get to what that planet is. Without knowing for sure, my guess would be that you might say that the people that are surviving right now were the existing diaspora at the time. People who had left for reasons, not necessarily because of the destructive incident. We see this a bit in Star Wars 2, not to cut in, but we also see this a bit with the Alderaan, people from Alderaan. Yes, yes. Uh, yes. Especially in the comics, there's an entire comic, but it's mentioned too in Aftermath Life Debt and Aftermath Empire's End, uh, that the the Alderaanian people, people who were off the planet when it was destroyed, there were a lot of them, because Alderaan is a, was a very big player on the galactic stage. There was a lot of Alderaanian people that were, when the planet was destroyed, were basically like, what are we going to do now? There's there's no planet. Uh, they do eventually, they, they get parts from the Death Star. Uh, they actually get parts from the Death Star. And as far as we know, they have constructed sort of a, a space station type thing in the ruins of the remains of Alderaan. Uh, so that's what they've... Leia actually also steps down being the princess of Alderaan. She, she passes the royal title over to someone else. But that's a whole different thing. Uh, I did want to ask quickly before we move on. I know you cited one specific example yeah. with the Old West kind of vibes of, yeah. of the, the, you know, mm, Utah-ness of it all uh, it gets to utah eventually and again uh, massive wanted... disclaimer we are not trying to draw comparisons between the children of the watch and this specific group Aaron just no. found this group really interesting i just think they're neat i wanted to start off with the more like historian-y scholarly definitions and examples because that's where the word diaspora was kind of coined because this is all based on our conceptions of the american old west and because this group is 
first and foremost, they, they exist only because of America. They are the American religious group in the, in the sense that they started here. They did not go through a climate crisis or a, a nuking of their home world, but they were obsessed with trying to find Zion and then reestablish Zion and then get kicked out of Zion, what they thought was Zion, and then declare a new thing Zion. And it's the the Church of Latter-day Saint, who, for various reasons, their founder, Joe Smith, starts out in New York. He has to get out of town because it's not easy to run a religion in the town you grew up on in. Goes to Ohio, then wears out his welcome in Ohio. Goes to Missouri. Claire's Jackson County? Jackson County, Missouri. The, if, you've, if, you've seen, the, <laughs> if you've seen Book of Mormon, you will know that uh, they believe that the Garden of Eden was in Jackson County, Missouri. Yes. This is one of the uh, things I know about them. And then wear out their welcome to an extent for various reasons that I will not get into at this junction. Sure. Wear out their welcome to the extent. We don't that have enough time a, to talk about how is, shitty of a person Joseph Smith was. Yeah. That Missouri puts a puts a hit out on all Mormons. There is a kill on site law in Missouri enacted by the governor that did not come off the books until the 1970s, if I recall correctly. They get out of Missouri to Illinois, then bounce back to Missouri. At one point, they found a city called Nauvoo, which is hilarious to me because whenever someone says Nauvoo, I confuse it with Nauvoo. And whenever someone says Nauvoo, I confuse it with Nauvoo because they sound so similar. And I'm just going to say both made up. <laughs> These are both made up words. Yeah, because I know that uh, I know that the, the Mormon church did like a lot of bouncing around. They uh, did a lot of bouncing around. And, and eventually their founder, for reasons, gets killed in prison. And suddenly you have this group where their founder, the guy who ran things, he's dead. And they splinter to the winds. There's a faction that stays and that goes down back to Missouri, where there is still a hit order out on them. And they become a faction that, oh God, they have such a generic name that I don't. Basically, it's run by his first wife, Emma Smith, and their son, Joe Smith III. And then there's a faction that goes up to Wisconsin. And then there's another faction that goes down south towards Arizona way. And the last is the group that uh, led by Brigham Young out to what's now Utah. And they're the one that lasts partly because this particular guy was really good at, he, he saw okay, uh, I'm going to need to isolate these people, consolidate them under my control and get everybody really good at just having survival skills and wanting to basically a whole generation of people is brought up that is very bloodthirsty in a way that is like, okay, if if you are against us, it's a kill on sight. It's well, not quite that. Uh, I'm I'm making a lot of generalizations, but you're trying to sum up a lot of, of yes, Mormon history but, in about five minutes. Yes. And with any religion that springs from Christianity, it's easy to found a splinter group and say, we're doing it like they did in the old days because you're not doing it like they did in the old days. The FLDS, the Fundamentalist Latter-day Saints, there are so many iterations of them because at various points they go, you're not doing it the way the prophet Joseph Smith did it. We have to go back to the original way that they he did it. And there's a built-in mechanism where you can go back and say, you're not doing it the way they did in the start. And Christianity does this a lot too. Uh, other world religions do this a lot too. I cannot speak for Judaism and Islam, but I will say that in Christianity, the thought is always, well, we have to go back to the basic, the way that the church and say the book of Acts 
was run, the way that the church was run when we were first kicked out of Rome or whatever. But I will, I will finish off by saying those groups that decide to go back to basics, for lack of a better term, they are what we now call fundamentalists. They want to go back to the fundamentals of the religion. And without knowing what happens later in the season, I'm just going to say, I don't think, I would find it very unlikely that there was ever a version of Mandalore that ran exactly like this. I think that this is an example of fundamentalism, a fundamentalist cult that is going, we're going to follow the rules as explicitly written, because even, even if you take these rules as explicitly written in the old days, did people ever really follow them exactly like that? Like if you look at the Code of Hammurabi, did anybody... There's a reason you write down rules. It's so, it's a lot of times there are more guidelines than rules. And it's because somebody's not following those rules and you need to put yeah. down on paper somewhere, like how to, one, how to deal with this. And it's always one copy of the rules. You can't say that a whole planet followed those rules exactly. The wonderful thing about history and the documents that you are served by history is if you pick the right surviving documents, you can build a version of history from that. And I think I can say one thing about studying history. It's that you will never know anything for sure. You are, are always learning with new information that's being dug up. Anything I say can be easily disproven if we just find new source documents. It is always changing because you will never fully, truly know exactly everything that happened without a time machine. And I think this is an example of a fundamentalist splinter group that because they were trying to survive, saw that this was the way to do it. They already had some fundamentalist leanings when they were on Concordia. When they were when they were Death Watch, because the when whole they were Death Watch, of, the whole sort of Death Watch was more of a conservative political movement mm-hmm. to where we don't like uh, we don't like this pacifism that Satine yes. Kreese is trying to bring. We don't like yeah. uh, we think that's anti tradition, anti Mandalorian. And then if you ah. think that Bo-Katan was cursed by, what was it? She was gifted the Darksaber? She was gifted of- to the Darksaber. So Sabine, yeah. uh, who is a different person than Satine, basically finds the Darksaber, wins the Darksaber in combat, uh, kind of. And then, uh, yeah, she, she has to fight Gar Saxon for it, Bradley. I see Bradley kind of... Doesn't Maul kill Gar Saxon and get it? No, Maul kills Previsla. And that's how she gets a dark saber. Maul takes a dark saber to Dathomir. Sabine finds it in Dathomir, tries to bring it back to Mandalore. And her mom is like, did you win it in combat? Sabine's like, no. And Ursa Ren's like, well, that's worthless then. Uh, And then eventually she does have to fight Gar Saxon, which is kind of like winning it. It's either Gar Saxon, yeah, it's Gar Saxon. She has but wait, how does how does Gar Saxon have control of it when Maul is still alive? Well, he challenges he... Sabine for it, and Maul lost it. It it gets weird and complicated. But the short I think, version no, is no Maul loses it because Palpatine, right? No, Maul has it. It's on Dathomir is where they find it. He gets it back somehow. Somehow that he is returned. a good that is a good question though yeah because Palpatine we don't have time to get into all yeah, of this. I know the, the, Basically, the complexities yeah. of the dark saber all this saber all of this leads to say that Sabine just hands the dark saber to Bo Katan mm-hmm. and says look I'm not going to be a good leader you do it 
And I didn't realize that when I first watched the end of season two of Mandalorian and rewatching the end of season two of Mandalorian to brush up on my memory of what actually happened because I have a memory of a goldfish. Seeing her refuse it when Din Djarin offers it to her, now I understand why she stiffens up and goes, I can't take it from you. Everybody following me is following me because they want me to win it in combat and do it the way that you're supposed to because uh again she's leaning on some fundamentalist here she's even leaning on it a little bit or their interpretation of it again i really want to talk about lines that happen later in the season but i'm going to be vague that's fine different groups of the mandalorians put different weights on the dark saber as an aspect of the fundamentals Mm -hmm. of their culture and i do want to say when we say the word fundamentalism it is a neutral term we're not using it in the sense of fundamentalist christianity those splinter groups that are like kill all of the people that are not cis white people uh, because Mm -hmm. jesus said so which is a weird interpretation of it but we're speaking as an as a perfectly neutral term yeah to say a group that is trying to go back different groups of mandalorians have different interpretation of of what the fundamentals Mm -hmm. of their culture and religion which are kind of meshed in the same thing are so it's interesting to Mm -hmm. see particularly in the character of bo katan where she's going to go this season, how she's reconciling those different interpretations of the fundamentals of their religion and their culture together. I think she's definitely leaning on it as a, I am aware that this is more or less a myth, but this is important to cons- to make people believe in me. Well, we, we have to move on from yeah. that, but this, thank you for yeah. that interesting bit of history. And I know you just like to come on the podcast and talk about weird religions. This is what I do in my downtime. I'm so sorry, This is what Bradley. she does in her downtime. I'm so sorry, this Bradley. This is the way. This is the way. Erin just pulled a horrified face. <sighs> that was my major tangent for this episode. I'll, I think I'm mostly done after that. My religion is that the flamethrower is useless. And in the this. fight with the gator uh, turtle thing, oh my God. Uh, the flamethrower is useless. <laughs> it does nothing. <laughs> While watching. You try to hit it with the flamethrower and it does nothing. Flamethrower Count number one. <laughs> flamethrower is useless. Count number one. Every time I see them use the flamethrower, and I might have said this before, all I can think of is Spaceballs the flamethrower. And I think that's the primary reason why I've never been able to take it seriously. Uh, I've never been able to take it seriously because it is a useless and ineffective weapon that only Mm -hmm. is good for one specific thing, which is lighting flammable things on fire. And we have also seen, we have also seen that even in real life, anti-infantry flamethrower weaponry is completely fucking useless. Yeah, it's it's maybe good, like a, a kind of the equivalent of a of a taser. Like you can use it to shock something, but I don't think it's going to work through the hard shell of a gator and let and it uh, doesn't. An aquatic animal, <laughs> an, an aquatic animal, animal that is sure. presently covered in water. Like what right. are you going to do? It has a shell. You can use it to kind of scare a thing, but the thing right. does actually have to be like more than momentarily inconvenienced, and you have to you have a, a part two. You need a fireball big enough to be the equivalent of that the flamethrower to a normal sized person like i don't know a, a ship shooting a torpedo at it for yes example. ship shooting a torpedo at it just like in the phantom menace oh i yes. was just trying to segue into you know the naboo uh, you did an excellent job the the naboo starfighter comes in bradley i wanted to ask you did did you have the same moment i did when they fire the thing uh from underneath it of oh that's just like in the phantom menace you know what's funny as I didn't make the connection. Oh, that's the same 
probably because I had a Naboo Starfighter toy as a kid, and that's where the firing port, it had one of those spring-loaded torpedoes in it that you could fire. Oh, okay. That we really probably shouldn't have been giving to children in the 2000s. <laughs> or the 1999 when I got this, but, but we did, and we're still doing it. Lego is all spring-loaded, like, I'm looking at a spring-loaded Bastille from season two. I've just been thinking Navu Starfighter. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm, now I'm imagining Joseph Smith in a Navu Starfighter flying around between different states because he keeps getting chased out of them. Oh, him put himself in a combat role willingly? Oh, God, no. No, he wouldn't. <laughs> Anything that's not just arm wrestling. In the armorer's cave, Din asks her how he can redeem himself in the way. She informs him that the only way is to bathe into the waters of on Mandalore. The planet is not habitable, so that's not an option. Din offers proof that someone may have been to the surface. Din seeks to redeem himself by traveling to Mandalore and bathing in the waters himself. The armorer accepts his quest. To Aaron's point earlier, as far as like the armorer, maybe not necessarily wanting them to retake Mandalore because she has more power when they're in exile. I do find it interesting that Din comes back after like two years of being exiled from the covert. And literally the first thing she says is, you took your helmet off. Yeah. And also I didn't passage of time wasn't as clear to me it's not it's not clear to anyone we only know it's like about that length of time because john favreau said and i like how it's it's clear from visual cues in the episode that time has passed but yeah it's really confusing until you get to navarro once you get to navarro you're like oh okay some significant time has passed that that makes sense because i was like holy shit navarro's popping off man it's been several years since the events of season two I feel so dumb. I, I, it, I you're didn't... not dumb. It's bad writing in the episode. But she literally starts off by just lecturing him about how dumb she he does. is to come back. Knowing that two years have passed make him showing up with the inscription makes so much more sense because my primary note from that for that is, where did you get that? When did this happen? And he says Jawas, but I'm like, when did, when did you, how long has this been? Uh, a significant period of time. And the other note I have is that, uh, again, I was watching this with my father and uh, he is a, he studied geology. He's a geologist and he interjected during the episode with, oh yeah, that's the same, uh, same uh, stuff that showed up in New Mexico after the Trinity uh, nuclear testing. I'm like, so what now? And the crystallization they're referring to is indeed the heat crystallization of sand after, you know, you heat it up with bombs, for example. But also there is, and I looked at this up on the, 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 the Wikipedia and they mentioned Trinitite by name as one of the, the, the crystals that's, on, that's embedded into this in, inscription. Uh, Trinitite is a quasicrystal that is formed after formed by nuclear fission or fusion. I'm not. A, I'm not. A, but, <laughs> I'm a uh, doctor, not a physicist. I, I'm a historian, not a physicist. But the fact that Trinitite is there, it, he 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 says something along the lines of maybe the surface isn't poisoned. If that's there, that it, it is poisoned, but. Uh it is poisoned unfortunately you can probably go there but it is poison because this stuff it only appears in our real world when there's been some uh nuclear we saw in uh in book of boba fett that the night of the thousand tears they did use 
Yes. Nuclear weaponry to destroy Sundari. A lot of them. They used a lot of nuclear weaponry. And a a clarifying point we will find out later in the season, the Night of a Thousand Tears, which is the bombing that we see in Book of Boba Fett and the Great Mm -hmm. Purge of Mandalore, the way they essentially wiped all life from the planet. uh, These are two different events. Uh, The Night of a Thousand (laughs) Tears comes first. So they drop a bunch of bombs and then some stuff happens and then they purge the planet. Finn heads off to Navarro to meet up with his old pal, the now High Magistrate, Grief Karga. In the time since we last visited, Navarro has thrived under his leadership. Karga offers him a job as a marshal, but he declines. They are interrupted as Grief seems to have a pirate problem in town, and the pair confront the pirates and scare them off. Love seeing Pergil. Other than that, I feel like Aaron said literally everything that needs to be said about the Pergil scene up at the top of the episode. Yeah, with a little, like, oh, it was a cute space scene. Well. I mean, oh, yeah. right. I keep forgetting that Aaron hasn't watched Star Wars oh, a lot right. outside of this. Yeah, those, so those space whales are called, here's, here's my thing I will now tell you. Uh, okay. Firstly, you should watch Rebels. It's really good. The per- those space whales that Grogu sees are called Pergil. They are okay. hyperspace capable space whale. Actually have the capacity to launch themselves into hyperspace. In fact, it is theorized that them traveling through hyperspace may be how some of the earliest civilizations learned how to do this, how to travel through hyperspace. They are crucially important to the plot of Rebels as well as to the disappearance of one Grand Admiral Thrawn. Okay, that sounds suitably interesting enough to draw my attention. Yes, they're very weird little space whales. I love that. I love that so much. We hop over to Navarro, which has grown a lot, and we we see some fucking aliens. Uh, And there's little salacious crumbs up in the Kowakian monkey lizards is what they are called. I don't even have to look that up. I just know that these are Kowakian monkey lizards. Uh, Best known as a salacious bee crumb, which is a character from Return of the Jedi. My note from arriving at Le Port de Navarro, a gem of the outer rim, is... Baby Yoda sees the food roasting for sale and he thinks, I want to eat that. He sees the food being chopped up and he thinks, I want to eat that. He sees the bat parrot on that guy's shoulder who walks by, the little bat dragon parrot, dragonling thing on the guy's shoulder. And he thinks, I could eat that. And then he sees the weird (laughs) monkeys as it's in my notes. Lizard monkeys, you said? Mm -hmm. Kowakian monkey lizards. Kowakian monkey lizards. He looks at that and he thinks they are bigger than him. But it's all shot from his perspective looking around. And that is my interpretation of his internal monologue. And then that's all I got before they get to Grief Karga's office. We see that time has passed because he's got a beard. We also see uh, we also see that Grief Karga has now droid. His train has grown so oh. much that he has droids to carry his train around. That is high magistrate Karga to you. That is high magistrate Grief Karga. I do love the self in- the self imposed title. By the way, like I don't think <laughs> he wasn't democratically elected or anything. Okay. On the old West comparisons front, that happened all the time. You could just declare yourself a magistrate. If And usually it started off by some guy who just built a saloon. And a town popped up nearby a railway. And town pops up around it. Guy who runs the saloon. Everybody knows that guy. So he's in charge, essentially. Because he's also and the then, guy that ran the bar in season. Well, he was operating out of the bar in season one. This is what I'm talking about. It all track. This happened in a couple ways. Uh, you see it first happen as the Oregon Trail westward are being founded. Okay, you're on your way west. 
you got to stop eventually. Here's where you can stop. For example, Independence, Missouri. It starts off as just the last place you go before you leave what's known as civilization. And uh, okay, good, good luck, guys. Have fun. Don't get dysentery. And every time we invent a new mode of transportation, the things shift. So when the railway, uh, the, the the cross-continental railways are built, towns pop up on those rail lines that when cars and roads for cars are developed, a lot of those railway towns, they just fade away. A lot of those ghost towns are just old that railway is, tra- towns. That is very interesting that you talk about towns springing up along a traveling route because Grief does mention that they're on the Hydean Way. Yep. The Hydean Way is a super hyper route. It runs from the core world to the outer rim. It is one of the biggest hyperspace routes. It is mentioned a few times, especially during the Clone Wars, as being something, uh, the Hydean Way being this route that they need to control. So it is actually a very important trade route. Uh, control of the Hydean Way, you could do a lot of damage if if you are messing with stuff on the Hydean Way. So it actually so is this major trade route. And Grief mentions that trade coming in and from the Hydean Way to Navarro has bolstered it a great deal. A similar thing happens with shipping ports. There's a lot of uh, port cities that exist just because if you're making the route, uh, say, through the, the Suez, you'll eventually stop through various cities on the way. Or if you're making the route around the Horn of Africa, you will, the bottom of Africa, you're going to stop on the way here because you need to refuel eventually. It is the gas station. Yep. If you've ever traveled like uh, for a long time on the highway and eventually need to stop for gas and there's a small town there with a gas station, that that's what we're talking about, I think. Uh, the Belters yeah. is apparently a reference to something. Sounds like uh, the Expanse. I think it's the Expanse. Uh, I've not seen that's... the Expanse, but I've told that the Expanse is very good. It is. And the people who mine asteroids in the uh, mine asteroids and spend most of their time living basically either on hopping from asteroid to asteroid or uh, off port on their own ship, not on like say a spaceport or a moon. Uh, they're, they're often called belters. And sometimes that's expanded to include the people who live just like outside of either earth or Mars, the people, the belters, the people who live out, you know, on the outskirts of the frontier, essentially. That one threw me. I was like, I believe some people mentioned it was an Expanse reference. That makes sense. We are introduced to the Navarro, called the Navarro Copper Droids. Uh, It is the droid that is speaking to Grief Karga in his office. We're not going to go through everybody who's in every suit and voicing everything because we would be here all day. I did want to point out the Navarro Copper Droid is being voiced by Parvesh China. Parvesh China, big comedy actor, been in History of the World Part 2, as well as quite a few other shows. I'm scrolling down here. He's got 180 acting credits. He's been in the Bob's Burgers movie. Nothing else that I recognize. He's a pet shop owner in Lady and the Tramp. Let's see if he has a Marvel. I couldn't find one, but I did find he was in Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Have you watched Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, Bradley? I've never seen it. You desperately have to see this show. It's so fucking funny. That's a CW show though, right? 
I believe so, but I promise you, like, like it's not I like ha- any. I only have so much capacity for CW it's shows. It's not in my like brain, y'all. it's like, not like any other CW show. Um, I know. I'm just kidding. The network. It's in the same on. vein as Ugly Betty and like uh, was it Jane the Virgin or whatever. I know it's in that it's, same vein. I think it's, it's the same creator. So actually. fucking good. One thing uh, it is a musical. It is a musical. Uh, kind of. It's weird. The person in the copper droid suit is a performer by the name of Chris Bartlett. Chris Bartlett is notable uh, because he does a lot of droid. He is particularly notable. He's been a guy in a suit for C-3PO for about 20 years. He was in his first acting credit was Pitching Lucas in 2006, where he portrays C-3PO. He's also the droid server and the traffic protocol droid in Book of Boba Fett. And in Obi-Wan Kenobi, he's the guy inside the suit of One Jack, the Forlom looking motherfucker on uh, Dayu, not Daro. Daro's the planet from Bad Batch. Uh, But I wanted to shout him out because this is what he does. Uh, Most of his acting credits are being in a droid suit. Speaking of people who are in this show, Vane, the pirate who is menacing everyone, uh, is being played by a gentleman named Marty Matulis. Uh, I apologize for the mispronunciation of the last name. It appears looking at his list of credits that being a guy and emoting in a suit is sort of a thing that he does. A lot of his photos on IMDb are like him in some sort of prosthetic suit or some sort of heavy makeup. In addition to being in The Mandalorian, he is in Evil. He is in Star Trek Picard as a couple of different roles. And he's in the show that one of these days I will convince Bradley to do a rewatch podcast for. He is in Teen Wolf as the surgeon, the outlaw, and a nukeite. I don't know what any of these words mean uh, because I never made <laughs> it that far. It's funny because I, I know you're saying it wrong, but I don't want to correct you because I, if we end up ever do doing it, it'll be funny Which we you're will. You're going to hear it. You're going to hear the days pronunciation we of it and you're going to be like, I'm gonna be I like, said God what? damn it, I screwed up the, <laughs> the episode. Yeah, this is just kind of what he does. We didn't really know at this time how significant this character was supposed to be until not in relation to the Mandalorian but in relation to well, some that, other things well, later on. that it hits weird because like we now know this guy's gonna be important which I didn't think when I first watched it it's the most stubborn I wanna drink here and it's like it's a school now there's no alcohol in it then bring me a drink here <laughs> the, the absolute the guy's like, I'm just going to walk into this school with all of my pirate buddies. It's a very Karen move. Mm-hmm. Which is the worst. I hate this character. Uh, and I desperately mm-hmm. want to see him die a horrible death. Okay. It was a funny scene for me because the whole time I'm saying out loud, there's no alcohol. <laughs> if you go back to his office, there might be alcohol there. If you want alcohol. And he's just being person. He's being a dick. Yeah. And we get to see Grief Karga like do a what's a quick, quick draw. draw. He does a so quick good. draw. He still got it. He still got it. Uh, that's also, he's in charge. My real last note uh, for this sequence, including the bit where Grief is like, hey, I need a marshal, mm-hmm. uh, is <laughs> lol, bye, Cara Dune. They did a good job. Yeah, they really were like, hey, you know that thing that we were going to do in the first season? Well, guess what? We This is how we fix that problem. Mando, would you like to do this thing? It, I mean, it's very... Yeah. It's very, uh, we're writing her off the show. And that's the nice thing about the show not being super planned out, uh, is that they can just kind of do that. And we'll see later on other characters take on the role that I theorize would have been Cara Dune, uh, had the actress playing Cara Dune not turned out to be just 
the absolute worst. I, I did note that. Ah, okay. We're explaining, explaining why she's no longer here. Cool, 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 cool. And if someone gets recruited by special forces, you're not going to hear from them again, them again for a while. They can't talk Whatever. about what they're up to. Of course, yeah. You'll, you'll never hear from them again. Yeah, it's I'm sure. Fun. I'm sure in like 20 years or something, when it's not so fresh anymore, somebody will do like a book or a comic or something about what happened to Cara Dune after the events of this show. But we're not at that point yet and we can't book do that. Comic. Book or comic would be perfect because no live action act. Somebody, somebody will do a Cara, a Cara Dune book and sure. there we go. After dealing with the pirates, Din reveals that he needs a droid. Not just any droid, he wants IG-11 revived. Din successfully revives the droid only for it to revert back to its original directive and attacks Grogu. <laughs> After stopping it, Grieve suggests the local Anzellans can fix the droid for him. The Anzellans agree, but say Din must find a new memory core first. Babufik! <laughs> Yeah, the, the statue was in season two as a background detail, and now they have decided to make it a plot point. I, yep. I, have, no mem- I have no memory of that. It's, it's blinking, you miss it. They don't call any attention to it, but in a see- in a shot where uh, Grief and Grogu and uh, Mando are entering the school, you can see the statue of IG-11 in the background. When the- they do the flashback or the, the intro, the, the, the previously happened on The Mandalorian, when they show IG-11, I remember thinking, myself we're going back to ig11 this is why we're going back to ig11 yes that is taika waititi again as the voice of of ig11 taika waititi very busy writing his own star wars movie i also love this reoccurring thread of like ig11 never dies like we always keep bringing him back for no reason whatsoever like it's like why don't you just permanently bring him back it's so annoying to me when they do this thing of like okay let's he dies nope no just kidding we brought him back as a nurse nope he dies now we're going to try to bring him back as a bodyguard. Like, it does, it's not working for me. Like, just bring him back. Oh, if you've ever recovered, like, a broken down computer, like, it's memory before and rebuilt it, they are all, eventually you have this ship of Theseus where it's a combination of, like, the left of one version of the hard drive and the cloud backup that you had, and it's no longer in the original computer, and none of the parts are the same, but it works for a droid. I also love the the quippy one-liner that Din does, the using your head. That's That's using your head when they drop the grief cargo head on <laughs> that's so bad so bad man. i do want to say not for aaron but for a future episode specifically episode six put a pin in din does not necessarily trust all droid he trusts mm-hmm. this one put a pin in that come mm-hmm. back to that because Got we it. have a more important scene to talk about and that scene is is the babu fricks all the little Baba Fricks. This is the this scene was definitely for those uh, who did not like the sequel trilogy. This was just for you. They did this on purpose, <laughs> and they brought not one but three Anzellans in this scene. Now, <laughs> shout out this season as a whole. And again, we'll get to it, particularly when we get to episode seven. This scene, this scene season really did say no. We are tying into the sequel trilogy. Uh, that is happening. Yeah, they, that is they happening. They do exist, and they are very important. So here you. Go. More so lore. we're going to tie go. into yeah. them. Would you like to know, Bradley, who's voicing the Anzellan? Yes, because you turned me on to this and I didn't think twice about the Anzellans, nor did I ever, it. I didn't even know in my notes, nor did I even know back when I watched Rise of Skywalker, did it even occur to me that the voice of Babu Frick would be something interesting. And this is all the same person. And so please enlighten us. Yeah. So whenever I go through and I'm, I'm 
highlighting who we want to spotlight because these episodes are very long and particularly when we have a guest they continue to be even more long you are the third longest guest that we have Uh, you have been beaten twice in terms of sheer runtime of the episode so we we can't obviously talk about everybody all of these people are fantastic and it's worth going to the imdb page for the episode and looking at their credits it's just specifically we have to sort of decide which ones we are going to talk about this one i absolutely 100 percent wanted to talk about because yes the anzellans are being voiced by shirley henderson shirley henderson is best known to star wars fans as the voice of babu frick but all millennials will know Shirley Henderson from that horrible Turf Woman's movies. She plays Moaning Myrtle in the Harry Potter series. <laughs> so great. She's, she's in Doctor Who. Fuck Joanne well. Rowling, by the way. Uh, she sucks. That's uh, true. Uh, the actress also appears in a very good episode of Doctor Who. I was literally about to say that, that she is the, she's Ursula Blake, who I do think, yeah, she's, she's in Love and Monsters, which is, I think, the episode. Oh, it's so, Doc, is it the one where she's the one that gets turned into like a slab of cement? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Make an awful joke. So, Doctor Who does this weird thing when it, at least during the Russell T. Davies era, where it would like have an episode or two that they kind of could film simultaneously with other episodes that they didn't necessarily need the Doctor and the Companion for because they'd only show up in like one or two scenes. A lower deck kind of. A lower deck. Yeah, it's a lower decks episode. Doctor Who would always have one per season, and this was that episode uh, where the Doctor and Rose Tyler are barely in it. They show up at the end. Yeah, that is who is voicing the Anzellans in this episode they're which so I fun was, this whole so scene is just like peak camp oh I, I yeah just like, I'm sorry I keep cutting you off okay the bit where they look down at the little door in the wall and you see the Anzellans leaning out like go talk to them he looks at the wall and he looks down and they're coming out of the wall and the little door it reminded me uh uh the, the bit in the near the beginning of the movie labyrinth where she meets the worm and the little door in the wall of the labyrinth and and the worm is like oh come inside have a cup of tea no you don't want to go to the castle oh me i'm just a worm it, it's the same little door type thing it's high camp it high is high camp, camp. everything about this scene yeah. is just high camp and i have in my notes specifically bad baby it's broke. <laughs> They're so cute. And well, of course, we, we knew that like Grogu with Anzellans was going to be cute as fuck anyway. But how did they make it even funnier and campier and cuter than we could have expected? Kinda... Because it was adorable. I think it, it works for me because it's Din sitting there. Because Din is, how do you get Din in is there? the how most... Did he there has to be a backup door because he could not have fit in that. You know what this makes me think of is like, if you've ever seen How the Grinch Stole Christmas, like the, the live action version, there's a <laughs> random scene in the movie where the Grinch stops a, a little mini car with little mini who's in it and it's like the the thought is like why are there little mini versions of people in this world and little mini cars and like so it doesn't make any sense in the terms of like the world building but like it's just funny because practicality is like these are obviously smaller aliens or like yeah. little people aliens like so the, why would they go out of their way to make a giant ass house for themselves it's like no we just have a little house because we're little people they're like D&D under size class extra small. They're like underneath another building, but like yeah, it's the fact that Din. So the thing about Din is that Din Jaren, like really honestly, like does not know he's in a Star Wars. <laughs> So everything he's in, he's taking completely at face value. He's just like, yep, yep, I'm going to sit here and look I'm at sorry, the, what the did you say? Uh, well, and then that's what I like about... 
so serious. I like sitting cross-legged on the floor in a crawl space. No, well, I love not I love the juxtaposition of this with Andor because like you can go from a show like Andor where it's very serious and very political and stuff and then you jump into this super high camp of Star Wars and you have to remember like yeah, Star Wars is also about this ridiculousness of this this very serious character in this very crazy situation. Uh, All right, we got the Muppet Babies version over here. Got it. I, I, one thing I love about Star Wars is that a lot of different stories can exist in the same universe that you can have you can have a very serious political drama you can have a very serious character study like obi-wan kenobi and then you can have no no it brought no fix it broke so and Aaron, this is just a tease for you because if you thought Muppets were camp, just wait. We're not even at the campiest episode of this season yet. And <laughs> oh it is my god. Fantastic. Oh my god. Oh like it my is god. ultra high camp to the fullest extent Star Wars has ever gone. And you're gonna be like, okay. Okay, Mandalorian, I see what you're doing. This this shit looked at fucking Phantom Menace and was like, we can go campier than this. As Din leaves Navarro, the pirate crew led by Vane's superior, Gorian Shard, attacks his ship. But Din successfully escapes the pirates, taking out a few of them in the process. It's a very fun scene. It's very Attack of the Clones in the asteroid field. I'm sure Bradley yeah, I, approved of that. No, I definitely liked it. Yeah, it gave me... Uh, I, it was it was just good vibes. I, I love the idea of pirates and space i was like wow we, i'm surprised they haven't like yeah. really leaned into this before as much and i really liked it i almost was getting like where's hondo onaka and all of this like he needs to show up because i love this whole pirates in space thing hondo onaka is not a pirate hondo onaka is a legitimate businessman <laughs> everything hondo onaka does is above board if you're a privateer then absolutely the pirates excited me because i have been listening episode by episode to a really great podcast uh where you know space pirates feature as enemy prominently for for a bit and they're like representative of what seems to be the big bad and i'm really enjoying this particular what, star what wars podcast, podcast. what podcast uh, it's called, is it here uh, it's called for light and dice i've heard of that one yeah it's good mm, i've never heard I've, of it i've Sounds heard like of that one podcast. you might check it out if you get some downtime it's I've, fun. I've heard it's pretty good uh <laughs> yeah, yes Aaron. speaking of camp uh for speaking light and dice. <laughs> <laughs> no it really is like for light and dice is is there's bumper stickers on the the gunk droid and it's gunk. it's ridiculous gunk. uh every uh, yeah. so often i restrain myself from leaving a review for the podcast that's just gonk for light and dice being of course the the high republic era ttrpg podcast that i am on as a cast member uh voicing Wen, who's named after a dragon age character uh Mm -hmm. who could not be more different than the dragon age character they are named after getting good reviews from people who have not even barely seen star i think jordan has seen maybe one star wars she's seen some star wars i've made her see watch she's seen some some star Star wars Wars. even she she enjoys light and dice so you can check out light and dice even if you're not a big star wars fan if you like D&D especially played D&D 5th edition if you've seen if you've listened to Critical Role or The Adventure Zone that's all you need to know I don't know much about Star Wars the uh that the, the High Republic era really and and it explains everything it's great and it's a really great explainer for how D&D 5th edition works too if you've never played D&D well I'm sure we I was about to say I'm sure we will eventually have a fight in an asteroid field but I do think like two episodes ago we did have a fight in an asteroid field yes Yes, you did. Uh, we did. But yeah, Space Pirate. He rolls in like a vast matey. Yeah, and he like, has this big ship that it looks like. <laughs> I gasped when I saw the ship because it looks
looks so much like the Eclipse from Legends, the Star to Superstar Destroyer Eclipse, which was a... Legends had this bad habit of, like, for a while there in the 90, the 80s and 90s, all the supplemental, particularly the 90s, the supplemental material would be like, what if we made a thing bigger? So the Eclipse was, what if the executor, but bigger? Checks out for That's ships in the real world. Yep. Pause. Let's talk about Gorian Shard. Yeah, the most interesting character to so far come out of this episode. Love for this my, For me, design. at least. The character design, yeah, is insane. Got seaweed uh, face? Seaweed face. God, I fucking love him. He's so interesting. Like, it's very Star Wars, like, camp. Like, Fun. perfect. And it's exactly like if you think space pilot. Pirate, that's exactly what you think of. Let's talk about who's voicing him and who's in the suit. Right. Because they're two different people. Gorian Shard, who I keep wanting to call Gorian Shand, because they <laughs> look exactly the same. Uh, R and N look basically like the same letter. Gorian Shard is voiced by Nonzo Anozi, is the gentleman's name. If you Google this man, you will recognize him from something. In The Sandman, he's the voice of Wavern. In Artemis Fowl, the terrible movie, he's Demovi Butler. What movie? Exactly. <laughs> That's the point. Go on. He's Demovi Butler. In Doctor Who, he's the voice of Hydroflax. I know him in particular from two specific shows. In Game of Thrones, in season two, he's Zaro Zoandoxis, who's the, the Carthian merchant that takes in Daenerys. Dies in the show, still alive in the books, uh, waging war on Marine. Uh, but he is that guy. But I also recognize him from the 2013 Dracula show, plays Renfield. This and if you're thinking, you. how does that make sense? Uh, it doesn't. The character is completely different in the show than he is in every other adaptation. Yes, I am perpetually being haunted by the 2013 Dracula show. The okay. third worst Dracula adaptation mm -hmm. in my mind. Only behind Hot Take, and I'm sure they'll fight me about this eventually, Bram Stoker's Dracula uh, mm -hmm. at number two, and then Netflix's BBC's Mark Gatiss's Stephen Moffat's Dracula, which premiered back in 2019 and is some of the worst garbage I've ever laid my eyes on in my life. Uh, anyway, that's who's... You, one day I'll ask you for like the full top 10. One day, I've I've always wanted to do something where I, I I get to talk in detail about how much I hate Bram Stoker's Dracula and why I hate it so much. But you know, you could just I, I don't want to dwell on Dracula too much. But you know, you could just start a podcast where every season is about a different Dracula thing and you just break down the whole thing. Why it's low either key, awful or if, good. <laughs> if, if I ever get enough time in my life, uh, one of the things I do want to watch uh, launch would be some sort of Dracula content. Will However, we don't have time. Um, uh, will, will this be, will this come before? after the uh uh elizabeth bathory series uh it would it would come after because that's my highest priority uh mm -hmm. and one day i do want to do something with all the ridiculous amount of knowledge i have on elizabeth bathory mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. let's talk about who's in the suit mm -hmm. the gentleman in the suit the minute i say this name i'm sure bradley will probably recognize him carrie jones Bradley does, is giving me the, you need to prompt me into this look. Uh, you've seen Carrie Jones before in the book of Boba Fett. He's Black Chrysanthemum. Ah, okay. Now it makes sense. I was like, yes. I, I, it took me a second to get there, but I was like, okay. In the book of Boba Fett, he is Black Chrysanthemum. He is a big 
like makeup guy, uh, special effects makeup, performance guy, prosthetic makeup. Uh, I will say he was the supervisor for the KNB FX group in Werewolf by Night. So I'm not sure if we want to, let me look and see if he's done a Disney thing. Uh, was Santa Claus, was Santa Claus's Disney? I thought you were going to say Chris Santa Claus. <laughs> Black or Santa Claus? The Santa Claus is Disney, yes. Like Claus, his... like that uh, Tim Allen, the Santa the, Claus? The comedy series, Santa Claus. Is... Yeah, so uh, Kerry Jones actually does have a Disney trifecta if you include his role as a crewman. Oh, uh, well. Which I'll give it to him. I'll give it to him on a technicality. It's a technicality, he, yeah, yeah, yeah. He has at least been involved. In... Involved, okay. Yeah, he has at least been involved. Oh, no, he's he's in Werewolf by Night. Uh, yeah, he's says... Ted. Okay. Uh, and then let me see if he's been in. It doesn't look like he's been in a, a Disney thing, but I'm going to give him I'm going to I'm going to give him a, a sort of honorary Disney trifecta just for his work. OK, well, he's also in Teen Wolf. He's also in Teen Wolf. He's in Teen Wolf as the, he's in the first season. Yeah, the, the alpha werewolf in the season I did watch, although I remember basically <laughs> so nothing go. about it. And we do get a Dank Fair. Dank Fair count one. Dank Fair count goes up by one. I forget what our, our count is. I like how we're not going to keep track of any of these counts, but we're like, oh, there's another one. Oh, it's, so for those so of you at home that want to keep track. We say that. This, we say that. Dark Side Divas and Marvelous Divas one of their listeners actually does keep a spreadsheet. I would I would love for someone to start like a, a a Wikipedia for our podcast and just keep track of all the stupid shit that we keep trackers for. And that would be great. So if somebody we out there wants keep, to spend their time keep track of it. do that, I would love it. I would be so grateful if you did that. But I personally will never keep track because I don't care that much. But it's also never. We're just making we this up it. as we go along. Let's say it resets for the season. We have one so for the season. Dank Ferret Counter is at one for the season. And finally... Din and Grogu exit hyperspace to the Mandalorian system, where they head to Kree's castle. They meet with Bo-Katan, who reveals she has given up her plans to reclaim Mandalore. She tells Din he's wasting his time trying to go to the planet's surface, tells him how to get there anyways. The planet that they go to is called Kalivala. It is a planet in the Mandalorian system. It is namely the home of Clan Krees, uh, which means it is the home world of Duchess Satine Krees, as well as most likely Bo-Katan. Although I think Bo-Katan would claim Mandalore is her, her home world. This is the seat of power for Clan Krees, is on Kalivala. It's our first time ever seeing it, but Kalivala has been mentioned a great deal in uh, the Clone Wars as being where Satine is from. It is also where I theorize that, uh, that just Satine that out, yeah. and Obi-Wan's uh, secret child, Corky Kreez, was raised before being passed off as Satine's nephew. Uh, but I am going to continue to have that tinfoil hat on my head until the day I die. I was going to say, Charles, put a pin in Corky Kreese for now. Oh, oh, I know. I know where this is going in several <laughs> episodes. I have the same theory, but... Do you? Okay, I can't I wait till we get similar, there. Or I have a similar theory, I think, to what you have. Okay. Uh, yes, so Aaron, that is some information about the planet of Kalivala, where they Got currently it. are. And that is, in fact, Castle Kreese, or a castle. Uh, it's never explicitly identified, I think, as the direct seat of power, but we can assume by the fact there is a throne 
throne there. We can assume it is probably the seat right. of power. You can yeah, put a throne you anywhere. You sure as shit can. And but like you a... can't necessarily pose like that on a throne just anywhere. <laughs> no, you, you really need more of a chaise lounge for that situation. Uh, as she's introduced, it's a very cool introduction. But all I could think was like, that can't be comfortable lounging like that in the armor. Is she? How long has she been sitting like that? Did she set that up as he came in? Like She, <laughs> she clearly set that up when he came in. I have like, a great... Right. Uh, I have a great TikTok that I'll send you guys. Um, it was it's so funny. I feel like I maybe I sent it to you, Charles, but there's a hilarious TikTok of this girl who uh she's pretending to be Bo-Katan and then it's like you see Mando flying in and she looks up and she goes, Oh shit, and then she like runs real quick <laughs> yeah. to like her throne I've room seen and like it. tries to pose. It's so fucking funny. I, I, I love to see that. I a hundred percent believe that uh that she's just like loud, she's just like hanging around, like making breakfast or something, and the droid's like, the Mandalorian is here, and she's like, shit. Uh let me lounge upon the throne in a position of relaxation. I love it. I love it. And you're uh, setting up the Zoom call before you turn the video on. Try to look like, oh, yeah, you just kind of have to like been, like, been mm-hmm. here the whole time, just like this. It's what it's whatever I have to like, whenever I record for Light and Dice or I go on a live show or something, I always have to like spend several minutes adjusting my cameras. Like, do I want the Obi-Wan poster in the background? Do I want the High Republic poster in the background? Do I want to like angle the thing in such a way? so it exceeds my collection of books uh or do we want more of a blank wall thing what's going on here bradley of course doesn't have this problem because he's already set his thing up to have all of the fucking funko pops forever behind him they've grown since i last saw them he's added action figures uh and i I know i'm getting really creative with my uh my design process however i feel like i just need to buy a house for this i i I agree apartment lifestyle does not work for me anymore with all my shit i i'm actually i'm actually coming into some mild conflict because i keep (laughs) taking shelves from people who are moving and we're running out of shelves in the apartment you have to stop getting shelves where are you going to put all of these shelves let's talk for a minute about bo katan specifically where she's at because she she tried to unite her people and then when she showed up with the dark saber her people sort of disappeared so now she is this leader in exile and i i was thinking throughout history of instances where you have someone who is claiming to be a leader in exile particularly my thought immediately went to charles de gaulle during world war ii yes but but i asked aaron to see if specifically we had some examples of from history of of things that are similar to where bo katan is at this point in the episode Uh, well that's the thing uh a lot of the examples in history are examples of say your land has been snatched by someone else and there's a government there ruling uh, she's in the situation of our people are scattered to the winds and so mandalore now exists as a people but they only exist i'm only a ruler if those people agree that i'm the ruler and that's true that if you're a government in exile as well and but in this case you know there's no homeland for example to go back fortunately at least that's the way she or at least they it. think it's she thinks it's poisoned the children will watch the it's cursed for her i think it's always been i want to consolidate power under uh over the people uh yeah governments in exile you're only a pretender to the throne or a government in exile as long as people agree that you have any reason to be ruling for example there's real fun thing is to look up people who are descendants of royal houses today who uh, they are no longer royalty. Uh, They no longer have that, like, a claim to any throne. Like, there's still Romanovs alive today. Like, like, you know, 
descendants of the cousins of the the main group and they they got out of dodge and they went to like france and america and canada there are no but... immediate members of the czar's family alive unfortunately no. sorry to ruin anastasia for you she definitely got murdered we, uh, yeah we have evidence we have no, evidence she fell in love and she danced magically and <laughs> then there was this wizard guy for some reason and then a talking bat for some reason and that's how i know that history don't change history Charles. It's me, Anastasia. <laughs> I'm just like yeah. every everything about that movie is completely wrong historically. So I don't know. I, I think that's pretty much all I know about the history of that part of the world is from that movie. Tsar Czar Nicholas II did not get overthrown because he cast Rasputin out. It was quite the opposite, actually. He probably should have kicked Rasputin out to the curb. One day Charles will have his Elizabeth. The Battery podcast, and one day I will have my Rasputin podcast where we just, uh, just like a breakdown of a. All right, so we've got a historical boogeyman. Let's break this down. So we've got a drunk guy from the countryside, but yeah, there's no Romanovs direct from that direct line alive today. Uh, the Soviets. Uh, uh, well, we finally have some, you know, evidence from the former Soviet government. That, we did. You know, we did find out. That. Yeah, I think post yeah. that movie coming out, I think we did find out. Yes. 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 They did actually actually murder the entire family. It, Anastasia mm -hmm. did not escape. We've got bones, sadly. We, we do have a body. Uh, and as we know from Star Wars, if you do see the body, uh, they are not coming back. This is why I've learned from Star Wars. I think it's it's interesting, too, that, yeah, you can look at those people who will claim, because part of Bo-Katan's whole thing is that she's sort of claiming to be from a royal family, mm -hmm. that she's sort of claiming to be, which we know is also kind of true. Satine and the New Mandalorians did have to fight a civil war. Which happens all the time. In, so she in is sort of fudging the truth a little bit. It's that she it's, would have a claim to the throne. That she would have a claim to it through her family who sat on the throne. An example might be uh, uh, what might be a good example is say uh, the I think it's the War of the Roses. The differing families that all have like a claim to the throne that uh, fight or, over who gets it. Or the the whole kerfuffle surrounding the invasion of England. So the Norman Conquest is like the end of three different factions vying for power. Like the Vikings invade first to yeah. try to take power. Yeah. And part of the whole reason William like wins is because fighting each other. And then they're fighting each other. And William is, like... William is like a bastard who like barely has any claim to the mm -hmm throne but then he shows up with bigger army diplomacy and mm -hmm, proceeds mm -hmm. to yeah there's there, it's interesting to look at the way Bo-Katan talks about like her claim to the throne and and again you'll be interested to see where this season goes in terms of her sort of tenuous because yeah she really doesn't believe in the mythology she's more using it which is interesting because she's sitting in a room adorned with like murals of mythological battles true well she inherited that castle I assume she did inherit that castle she also seems to believe like she she directly calls the children of the watch a cult yes this will yes. become complicated later on in the season her attitude now of it is a a splinter cult we'll come back she talks that. about the factions that that fractured their people and yep. led to the civil war that was the eventual downfall and she doesn't seem to believe in the myth around this, but she definitely understands the power of the people below her believing in the myth. Right, which is why when she didn't show up with the Darksaber, it was like... It did not work, exactly. It did not exactly. work. She was relying on that to unite that particular group of people and keep
keep control of her fleet, uh, which you see has now gone. Yep. There is no more. There is no more fleet for now. It is they're running around throughout the galaxy with it. If no, for example, if nobody thinks that the monarch should be restored to the throne, case of say, you know, the the French monarchy, for example, after the French Revolution, if nobody thinks that there is a divine right to this group, the House of Bourbon, I think it is, being on the throne, then no one's going to work to do it. And I think they they reinstall post the French Revolution goes on for a long time, but post Robespierre, they do briefly install a monarchy again. And basically nobody likes this guy. So when Napoleon comes out of exile, everybody's like, oh, a guy we actually like. And then Napoleon Mm -hmm. declares himself like, no, he declares himself emperor before I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Plays himself emperor first, and then they put another guy in charge. But everybody's like, "Eh, we kind of want Napoleon, actually. Yeah, it's almost like there's a reason nobody liked having the monarchy in place. One of the things going on during the Napoleonic Wars was, okay, if you can overthrow your divine ruler, your ruler who has a divine right to the throne because God says so, then all the other countries around you, they have kings who are in power because they say God said so and throws everybody into question. So you end up with people having to back you up. And you also have like the idea too of uh, in in China, the mandate of heaven, the idea of the cyclical dynasties is that, you know, for a long time, an important part of, of that history was the idea that leaders were appointed essentially by divine right, but they had it built in to their mythology that divine right could be taken away. So it didn't actually mess with the system that much if you had a dynasty that becomes overthrown because, well, they lost the mandate of heaven. I don't know what to tell you. The Ooh, new guys related. definitely have it, though. We don't. We don't need to. There. We don't need to get into that. We've already slagged off the the Church of Latter Day Saints. We don't need to dive into get you further, like you know, <laughs> soft blacklisted from the ser- the search engine results. I am perfectly fine with being blacklisted by the Church of Latter Day Saints. Yeah, they don't. They don't have as much. To be it fair, would be Scientology have. that I would be very concerned about pissing off. Yes. Um, uh, given where I live. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, very careful about what I say regarding. Gonna the stop Church talking of Scientology. Can't stop uh, talking there. On that note, Bradley, do you want to give us the directed by and written by? Um, this episode was directed by Rick Famiyua, and it was written by John Favreau. This was his first episode this season. He will be directing three episodes this season. He has uh, also he been elevated to executive two. producer. Right. This Rick time around. Um, mm-hmm. He will direct so, the final two episodes. He was a writer, or he was a director on previous uh, previous seasons. He was a director in season one. He's a director in season two too. Uh, he will also, he has been upgraded to executive producer. Right. Uh, I think in part because John Favreau and Dave Filoni are getting stretched a little bit. They got too many balls they're juggling in the air now because you got yes. Ahsoka flying up there all the way at the top and then you got Mandalorian. Skeleton crew in Mando Skeleton season Skeleton four, crew, yeah. which they so. quickly had to write because it looks like a writer strike is imminent. Uh, so they have very quickly, they've already written season four, you know, because they just had so many ideas that they wanted to write down during post-production of season three that they just went ahead and write season four never mind that there's a, a wga writer strike about to happen mm-hmm. uh, never mm-hmm. mind that they definitely wanted to make sure they had everything yeah. uh, you know who else has been upgraded in the casting that i know in the crew list that i noticed couple of people. Our buddy I'm Watching You, Noah Clore, has been updated to co-producer. He was just a writer on uh, Book of Boba Fett, uh, and he actually will co-write one of the episodes as well uh, this season. So Noah Clore. So I'm so interested in this guy. I need to know like more about this person and what he actually does on these shows because his name pops up in all these interesting points. Like, who are you? What is your job? What's your deal? Also being upgraded in the credits in a really cool way, actually. Brendan Wayne and Le- 
Latif Crowder have actually been upgraded to the main credit. The main, uh, they're actually credited in the main names that go by in every episode. Uh, for those of you who may not know, such as Aaron, uh, the Mandalorian is actually played by three guys. Oh, yeah. Okay. Pedro Pascal okay, is the voice and some of it. However, because Pedro Pascal was also filming The Last of Us during season three, Brendan Wayne and Latif Crowder are in the suit the primary amount of the time. So they have actually been upgraded to full credit status for co-playing the Mandalorian. I believe one of them is a motion specialist and one of them is more of a stunt guy, fight choreography guy. I can't remember which one. Both guys bring as much to the Mandalorian as Pedro Mm -hmm. Pascal does. So it is cool to see them in the credit. Absolutely. Curiously, I will say Tate Fletcher, who has been portraying Paz Vizsla inside the suit, He's been playing Pez Vizsla. We didn't talk about Pez Vizsla in this episode. He's there. It's really interesting to look at his role in this episode in hindsight of what we're going to learn about him in the season. That's all I'm going to say. Tate Fletcher is credited as Paz Vizsla. It sounds like Jon Favreau's still voicing him. He's not credited or uncredited as the voice of Paz Vizsla, but I couldn't find anything that, at least that I could find, that specifically says whether or not Tate Fletcher is now voicing Paz Vizsla as well. You know, I wonder... So I, I can't mean, tell. I know how different it sounds so i bet you they probably like like kind of just slyly just changed it slightly and then they were just like oh yeah now he's just doing both yeah it wouldn't surprise me but it wouldn't at all unclear whether or not tate fletcher is actually voicing paz vizsla in addition to being in the suit this season or whether or not that is john favreau again i would have to hear it played back side by side yeah i would have to hear all i always said pre-vizsla all paz vizsla pre-vizsla the worst name for a Star Wars character. Versus past Vizsla. Oh my god. So this implies the existence, oh no, yeah, this implies the existence of a present Vizsla. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Pre and then past. <laughs> the once and future this implies <laughs> He really believes in Book of Boba Fett, he's the once and future Vizsla. There you go. <laughs> he's like, I'm gonna take the Mandalorian Excalibur. Yeah, Fuck yeah, you. yeah. I'm gonna draw the sword from the stone. Alrighty, well, Bradley, do you, do you want to, uh, are we just going to do final thoughts? I guess. Yeah, let's just do final thoughts. Um, we'll I guess end. we can do, I mean, we, you don't have to do like crazy like theories for the episode, but Aaron, you could give us one, your final thoughts. And then two, maybe like, well, I want to know like your perspective where you think the season's going or what you think that might be coming up. Uh, Cause we obviously know, but like, we I'm know curious to see what seen... your thought process is of like, what possibly is the storylines coming up? Um, I think that I've already forgotten what I've said like 30 minutes ago because I have the memory of a goldfish. Aaron remembers tons of details about random historical figures. Uh, Does not remember what she was doing an hour ago. Uh, My thoughts are... Uh, this is the first time I've been on and not been able to listen to like an episode zero from you guys. Uh, and I don't know what's happening in the future past this. And so my thoughts are, I guess after this, I'm going to go watch all the episodes that are out. Why didn't I watch these earlier? Uh, I think there's going to be more factional splintering, more grabs for power, stuff like that. That's what I expect. It's an interesting theory. My final thought that, you know, I was a little disappointed in this episode when it came out, uh, mostly because that it just kind of abruptly ends and we didn't know where it was going i'm torn because like on the one hand like on the one hand i'm like chris there really is no need for them to to put it out week to week but on the other hand like i do understand why they're doing it so i think retro retroactively it will be interesting to see like i like it better in hindsight i like it better leading in and and some of the stuff like the stuff with bo katan and the stuff with ig11 uh that makes a lot more sense in contrast with where this season is ultimately going uh so overall i do like it i i don't think it's the most solid opening episode uh, i do 
think one and two are a little better. It is better, I think, than the opening episode of Book of Boba Fett, but I will say that they're continuing the the negative trends in the writing from Book of Boba Fett on to uh, Mando season three. So it'll be interesting to poke around at uh, the next couple of episodes with this one as a foundation. Bradley, what are your final thoughts? I'll keep it pretty brief. Um, I, I I think it was a decent episode overall, but Aaron, once you watch the second episode, I think you'll probably like it a little bit better. But I think this probably would have been stronger as a two episode premiere uh, had they shown the next one. Um, I just something about like what happens in the very, very fi- first five minutes of the next one just belongs like you need to be able to watch it all at once. And so I think that that would have been a little bit stronger of an opening premiere because it, it kind of seems honestly, if you go back and look at them both now that I've watched it it's kind of like an extra long premiere is the first two episodes and so it, it would have been a stronger I think opening to the season had we gotten both of them not that I'm a fan of doing that but I, I just in terms of the story I think it would have worked but that's my final all righty uh Aaron do you have anything that you want to to hype up um you've already promoted for light and dice for which I appreciate certainly uh any pluggables because I know you don't you you're not a content creator you're a historian yep sure any, yep. anything you want to recommend people uh go and check out or uh I highly recommend go learn something new just go go to like a random article go to the seventh link on that article Click it and do that a few times and just learn something new. Do this in remembrance of me. <laughs> uh, and also, I am uh, I have a Twitter that I rarely use, at Aerolico, A-E-R-O-L-L-O-C-O. You're in the, the right, right place there. if you see a bird with sunglasses. With sunglasses, yep. I'm also, and and I don't know if, if you will agree with me on this, uh, I also recommend Noble Blood, coming off our conversation <laughs> yeah. about leaders. Uh, I know that you like that podcast, uh, and that one is about various royal figures throughout history if you want to learn more about leaders in that are similar to Bo-Katan. Dana does such a better job, probably because it's scripted, uh, such a better job summing up all of that stuff than I do. Well, Aaron, thank you for joining us to uh, talk about the first episode of The Mandalorian from an outsider's perspective, or the first episode of Mandalorian Season 3 from an outsider's perspective, and then also bringing in some history knowledge. We've learned about groups in diaspora. We've learned about leaders and royals in exile. So it's been a a fun experience. Uh, Thank you once again for coming on. Thank you for having me back. Uh, Fun as always. Fun time. Fun time. And Bradley, I I don't think we necessarily have anything. The usual things to promote, Bradley will run the socials in a minute uh you can go check me out on four light and dice uh we are entering our third story arc uh at time of recording this episode the first episode of that has not come out but we have split the party it is very fun i get to spend a lot of time with jess uh, and their fantastic character of Lysander. Uh, it's just a great time. Everybody's having fun. You can also watch Queen's Court on Peacock. Bradley was the travel coordinator for that trashy reality show. So we are hyping it up because God knows somebody has to promote this show. Exactly. God damn it, it's it, gonna be us. It's gonna be us because I don't know who else is doing it. You know. Nobody else is promoting this. <laughs> this random gay Star Wars podcast is the only spot, anything that's promoting that I've seen promoting Queen's Court. But then I'm not in... Uh, I'm not in the reality TV sphere um, because I have self-respect. <laughs> Alrighty, go ahead and run the socials. Thank you for listening to Gold Squadron Gaze. Did Charles fuck something up? Send us a message at goldsquadrongaze at gmail.com. 
follow us on Twitter at Gold Squad Gaze. Follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Gold Squadron Gaze. Subscribe to us on YouTube at Gold Squadron Gaze, where we post the podcast as well as exclusive content. Please join us next week and every week for more of Gold Squadron Gaze. Like most of America, I take what you're saying at face value and I will agree because it sounds right.